This is an introduction. Egre, 
have to fit in, like we can just be ourselves. And we are miracles because our ancestors survived and we're here. And it took me a while to see that. We're gonna hold a small ceremony and, and really bless the fire, thank the fire, and burn away anything that, that we feel called to, maybe write it down and, and throw it into the fire. It's very hard when you move away from the family to keep up with your tribe's traditions and things like that. It's so easy for them to fade away. Well, you're strong indigenous women, and I feel like this is definitely a time for our voices to be heard. I've always sort of been soft-spoken and the peacekeeper, but through that, I noticed um, like I was like raped and molested and like all these really terrible things and um, I grew through it. I think with more meetings of Native American women, it is shifting because we all have similar stories and we can all hear it and know that we're not alone in this battle. This year, I really feel just the anger coming up. It's like I can't hold it in anymore. It has to come out. I just want to yell and scream and be like, hey, we're here and, and fucking stop. Like, we're, we're really sacred. And the fact that we're even here and didn't, our ancestors survived is, is really a miracle. This is my house. I grew up here until I was seven. I was a really feisty uh, little kid. I was really outspoken and said exactly what was on my mind all the time. My mother is Kaiwa and Comanche. And my father is Havasupai and Kumeyaay. I don't know anyone else who is those four combinations of tribes. Here was sort of the spot that I hung out the most. Um, and climb up there and I, I remember when Pocahontas came out and I like would stand on the rock and I'm like, I'm Pocahontas. <laughs> Growing up in such an age of pop culture and things, I sort of lost that sense of the tradition. And since I grew up a lot outside of the reservation too, I sort of felt like I had to adapt. When I just sat down with my Comanche family and heard the songs, like I felt like I was transported back into the ancient ways. When I reconnected to the ceremony, I reconnected to my innocence and that feeling like, wow, anything is possible. We're about to meet with Rissa, my cousin, and we're gonna do a little bit of water release therapy that is used to really help PTSD and physical pains and mental illnesses. Hey! The water amplifies everything. It amplifies the energy and frequencies and transmute it into love, sort of, yeah. Hi, my name is Melissa Hill, and I am from the Villas Reservation. As I was growing up, I was definitely into the partying, the drinking, the drugs. The alcohol and drug abuse is just a symptom of what really happened to our people, and that is genocide, interracial trauma. They beat and raped and killed the spirit out of us, they tried to anyway. So along with this whole path of destruction, I'm gonna try to be that break where it's like, no, I'm not gonna pass this on to my kids. I'm gonna try to heal myself the best that I can to the best of my abilities.
Afterwards, I felt like I finally was able to release whatever I was holding on to. I was crying about how our people are still lost. They still don't have their identity. That connection to be able to be human. I really felt like our ancestors and past lives and everything coming mm -hmm. up and holding the space for you at the same time, feeling every, everything that you've gone through. I'm thankful for you. <laughs> no, I'm thankful for you too. My grandma, she got this for me. It says Kumeyaay, West Coast native. Um, that's the tribe I'm from. She got it over here at the tribal hall. I don't know the dude that made it, but he's Native American as well. We get like named by like animals for our middle names. So like my middle name is Bear. I think it's pretty cool. My middle name is a wild horse. I like that a lot. You can say these words in um, Kumeyaay. It's just uh, you'd have to like, like for personally for me, I gotta have to like learn them. My generation and then the generation behind me, like we don't know a lot of our own words. And that just shows you like how little Native Americans are with like their culture. I always sort of grew up with powwow. Like every weekend I was going to dance and I think when I was a teenager around 13, 14, I like was sort of like, oh, I want to explore outside of this. And, and then so I sort of rebelled and then I was like, wow, that was a bad idea because now I have a lot to catch up on. <laughs> Things are always sort of evolving. I'm very proud of her. She's very special. She always has been. When she dances, it's just beautiful. Hey, puppy. It's strong, it's free of people. So these are my moccasins and I brought my uh, Fenty Puma shoes. <laughs> Always being told don't be so materialistic, but they just make me feel so good. I'm really excited to go to this powwow and also a little nervous because I haven't been in a while. I feel like everything's gonna fall into place as soon as I get there. It's like this energy you can't feel anywhere else. We're at the Spotlight 29 powwow. And when we go in, we're going to see vendors and people dancing around a drum. Right now they're doing the contests. People, they sort of do a tour of powwows and like try to win the cash prizes or just reconnect with other tribes. My dad's beadwork, so every time I wear it, it's just real sacred to me. I feel the spirit and stuff, and honored to you know be able to keep your tradition alive and dance. When they're doing the the hard beats and the hopping, that's more of like really almost like summoning up their power. This is how we met, actually, when we were like 10 years old. And we've been friends ever since. <laughs> the stuff that we wear, everything is a lot more modernized. So for example, I got these skirts off of Amazon. It has to be more flashy now since it's better competition. It's more contemporary. Anything you can do to catch the judge's eye. For a moment, I got really hypnotized just sitting there and watching them and watching their foot movements and, and I could really see how they were moving energy 
with their dance moves and, and with all their tools and, and it was beautiful. When we were younger, we were taught by our grandparents and our dad grew up like that too, getting the teaching and all that involved in the bird singing and dancing. Well, for me, it's a very powerful, I would even say spiritual moment and uplift that you get. These days we wear dresses that have ribbons on them. The colors, we have a different meaning to our group. The blue represents the water, the red represents the dirt and the blood. Feels like we're sharing what we've got because that's the only thing we have. We got our traditions, our dances, and our moves. Expressing how we are as Native people kind of shows that there's more to us than just having long hair. It just shows us, us people that we are as one and that we are still here. So, where are we going? We're going to Trilogy Sanctuary, and it's right near the beach. Misty uh, from the Res is also coming. We grew up together and watching, like, Spice Girls and all sorts of things in the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> this bond that we all have is just, it's amazing. It's electrical and it's just everything that I want to be surrounded by all the time. I want to be surrounded by positivity, energy, light, creativity, <laughs> all of it. So that my family, my culture, being here to express it is what I've always wanted. We're still here, we're yes. still fighting, we're still doing our traditions, we're, we're still doing our prayers, still doing our ceremonies. <laughs> My grandfather told me a story. He was walking and there was like two paths, one like really rocky and the one clear path. But he heard like a rattlesnake in the clear path and, and then he just like ran to the rocky path until he was home. I saw it like sort of as a metaphor, like, oh, sometimes you just gotta run through the rocky path. <laughs> Thank you.
the ceremony and tells the story just like in the Christian book of Genesis from the beginning of time. It tells about how the universe was created, how the world was created, and how we came about. And our culture and tradition is extremely important because it helps guide us. My granddaughter that's having her ceremony, she's really into our tribal ways. It'll keep her strong the rest of her life. And not only that, but it'll keep the tribe strong. have this ceremony for the girls that are becoming into womanhood to become young ladies. After the ceremony it will give me a lot of respect as a young lady. It makes me very proud that I'm representing my tribe. There's four days we do everything in four for the four sacred mountains. You go through a baby to a child to a teenager and then to a woman. She's tested kind of through hardships. Four days of hard work. You try to keep as traditional as you can. And you live in a tipi for the 12 days, the four days before, the four main days, and the four days after. Every night you dance. And the fourth night, you dance all night. And then while they're dancing outside, you dance in your big tipi, in your home. Your medicine man, after he's done eating with you, he gives you a, an Apache name. Mine was Itza and Sehunti. And it's the lady who you first see. These traditions, they amaze me a lot. Like I learned new things from my grandpa. And the ladies around here, they like it when young women have their feasts. It took me about three years to prepare for the ceremony, and I'm still preparing. You think you have all of it, but you don't. It's, it's a lot to do, getting the Indian food, buying gifts to pay the people that help, the material. So far I spent like $10,000, but I would do it again to keep the tradition going. Now that I've had my feasts, I feel like I can become stronger now. You just felt different while you were doing it. Like it felt like you were living a long time ago and you didn't have to worry about all this stuff that's happening in the world right now. When you run on the first day, they bring it in and it's showing that you're like, come, like the kids coming in and on the last day you run out and you try to run as far as you can. A lot more families are going through the rites of passage than before. 
there's a renewed interest in it, and they finally get to know that the strength of our people lies with that. They're able to do things that before they were not able to. The uh, U.S. government uh, prohibited a lot of this stuff. They tell the families just to have a dinner and buy a new dress or something and don't take part in these ceremonies. They're taught to hate themselves. In the schools, they uh, would not allow you to speak in Apache and deal with these things in Apache and the churches too. They turn us against one another. Our own tribal members, they say that our ways are wicked. It's worshiping the devil, and they don't realize what's happening to them. My granddaughter that's having her ceremony, no matter what, uh, she'll never set aside her culture, tradition, or language for anybody. She's a direct descendant of my grandpa, Geronimo. He had some spiritual powers and he was able to deal with a lot of hardships. Not only is he an icon for the entire native tribes, but also for us Apache. I've been learning these traditional healing practices from my grandma. She's been teaching me a lot about these. She's been teaching me how to use the plants, where they come from, how they work. Well, the women are known as healers because the men, they used to go off to war, and once they come back, some of them won't be sick, so the women would have to gather these plants for them to help heal them, so they'll be ready for the next war. And then the dancers danced around me, and they blessed me. my great-granddaughter. I'm showing her things like traditional foods and traditional ways how to grow up and be a good lady later on. An Apache woman should know how to care for her family and just pass things down that their grandmothers taught them and their mothers. A lot of people don't understand some of the things that we do, like when our tribe gets together to eat, the men folks eat first because they have to be prepared at all times. They have to protect the tribe, so they eat first. And then uh, some people don't understand that, and then they think that the woman has a lower status and lower position, but could not be further from the truth. The uh, most sacred ones in our tribe are the women, so we have to protect them, take care of them. We have a few hardships within our tribe with the nuclear waste issues before. They tried to dump the nuclear waste on our land. We fought against it and we fought against the mining of some of the rare minerals on our land. And now we're facing the refining companies that want to come in and pollute and destroy the atmosphere. So we face challenges every day, but uh, with this rite of passage that my granddaughter's going through, it gives us the strength. 
when we sing and pray, it revives us and renews our strength. You can face any challenges and uh, they don't feel threatened. Some girls have breaks in the middle of the night. They sleep for an hour and then they get back up and keep doing it. But like, I kind of don't want to break. Like, I want to keep doing it because the longer you do it, the stronger you get. There's no words to describe how I feel to see her going through it. And I see the whole family pitching in and they're working hard. There's no way to repay them for everything that they do except to take part, continue to take part in all the things that was given to me throughout the years. The only way I can pay it back is pass it on down to my people. I'm Amy Blossom from Jackson County Library Services, and I welcome you to Windows in Time. Windows in Time is a series of local history talks, a program that's been developed by the Jackson County Library Services and Southern Oregon Historical Society. It is also part of the Southern Oregon History Show, which, shows, which airs on Thursday nights at 6 p.m. You can also see us live, though, at the Medford and Ashland Libraries the first and second Wednesday of each month at noon. So are you ready for some history? Let's go.
Uh, hi, my name is Mark Tveskoff. I'm a, I teach anthropology at Southern Oregon University, and I'm an archaeologist who has research interests in Southern Oregon and the state of Jefferson area, area generally. For the last uh, 10 years or so, uh, I've been doing a lot of work with the Rogue River Indian Wars that occurred in the 1850s, and that's the subject of my talk today. Uh, as a historian and an archaeologist, uh, one of the things that I find interesting is the way that the stories we tell about ourselves are these narratives that, uh, that oftentimes reflect values and ideas about who we think we are, who we want to be. And that is certainly the case with the Rogue River Indian Wars and the stories that Southern Oregonians and Oregonians generally tell about the Rogue River Indian Wars. And um, the, those wars began in the early 1850s, and one of the most sort of cherished narratives we have here in Oregon is reflected in our very state seal, that whose origin dates to the same time period. And the motto in Latin translates to, she flies with her own wings. And that state seal, or the territorial seal, reflects uh, an ideology or a narrative of rugged individualism, libertarian values, and generally um, a sense of independence. And uh, Oregonians and Southern Oregonians in particular are, you know, we are just, justly proud of, of those values. But when you really start to unpeel history and see how those narratives are constructed, um, it's interesting how narratives and stories we tell can sometimes mask and change and uh, for various reasons, conscious or not, uh, the, the actual facts of the case. Because against the stories we tell and how we like to think about them, there are actual things out there that we can, we can research through archaeology and history. Um, one, of the, one of the, as a historian and archaeologist, one of the interesting facets of that telling and retelling of, of narratives and is how they change over time. So for example, the Rogue River Indian Wars took place in the 1850s. And it was a, um, a fight, a sort of existential fight between Native American people who had lived here for uh, 10,000 years at least, and newcoming American immigrants. And a lot of the stories that we know, the history that, is, that we know about the Rogue River Indian Wars was written down and told, not in the 1850s, but 50 years later in the Gilded Age, as Mark Twain called it, or the Victorian Age, or the progressive, beginning of the Progressive Era when the American nation was very confident in itself and it had gone through the Civil War, it was experiencing the height of the Industrial Revolution, the beginnings of its own sort of, um, of colonial expansion. And at that time, the pioneers who had participated in the Rogue River Wars were now elderly and they thought very carefully in, about how they wanted their stories remembered. And so they wrote down uh, memoirs and they gave lectures at Fourth of July picnics and, and the like. And a lot of what we know about the early days of the Oregon Territory and the Rogue River Wars comes from those kinds of narratives. So for example, James W. Nesmith was one of our first senators and he was a young man during the 1850s. And he describes when in 1853, he was eyewitness to the signing of the Table Rock Indian Treaty, which established a, a reservation on the north side of the Rogue River. And he paints a picture in this, in this speech. And he says, um, Captain Andrew Jackson Smith, the commander of Fort Lane, had drawn out his company of dragoons and left them in a line on the plain below. It was a bright, beautiful morning, and the Rogue River Valley lay like a panorama at our feet. 
the exact line of dragoons sitting statue-like upon their horses with their white belts and burnished scabbards and carbines look like they were engraved upon a picture. So it's a very classic image, and um, it's a story about the triumph of the, the new Oregon Territory in establishing this Indian treaty and ceding land from Indian ownership to, to pioneer ownership. The, the officer he's talking about, the Dragoon officer, is Captain Andrew Jackson Smith, who was a 38-year-old captain in the 1st Regiment of the United States Dragoons. He had graduated last in his class, or second to last in his class at West Point, and found himself on the frontier in command of two companies of mounted uh, soldiers, dragoons. And he had built in 1853 Fort Lane, which was the, US, the first tangible inscription on the landscape of the Rogue River Valley of the US federal government. And that, that fort, named after Joseph Lane, who was an early Oregon territorial governor, was located on the south bank of the Rogue River, uh, northwest of the current town of Table Rocks. Fort Lane is one of the projects that Southern Oregon, one of the locations that Southern Oregon University has been researching over the last 10 years or so. We've conducted archeological uh, excavations there with uh, Jackson County and with the state of Oregon through, the, through state parks and many Southern Oregon University students have participated in that. Uh, this image show on the left side of the, of the screen was drawn by Captain Smith himself in 1855. And it was part of his reporting on his fort to his superiors down whose headquarters were in Benicia, California in San Francisco Bay after they had won the, um, the Mexican War. It's where the army was headquarters. And the picture on, on the right is the excavation of the enlisted men's quarters that Southern Oregon University um, executed in uh, 2012. And we've spent a lot of time uh, digging around in this site and looking at documents left over by Captain Smith and his fellow officers and digging up and finding the actual artifacts themselves. And the, 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 those documents and those artifacts speak to more than, than just this heroic pioneer narrative that Senator Nesmith relates. So for example, in the Victorian era, this was, an, the, the, this was an era when social distinction and social status and the, the differentiation between social space of where you ate and where you slept and where people of standing and, and lower ranking people lived, like the enlisted men in the officers' quarters, that's where those kinds of values were really becoming into focus in Western society. And you see that in the archeological remains of the fort. So for example, in the officers' quarters, they clearly had better artifacts than the enlisted men. Um, they were the only ones that had clearly had up-to-date regulation uniforms. This is a dragoon button on the right, uh, one of the artifacts found in the officers' quarters. And this same officer had a French perfume bottle or a French cologne bottle imported all the way from Paris. The uh, company that he, was, he had access to was the same company that was used by the royal family of Great Britain. So in, at the same time, the enlisted men, at the same time the enlisted men had um, secondhand uniforms. They had their artifacts reflected a more mundane existence, the equipment they used on a daily basis. And they had um, cologne as well, but it was made out of cow marrow. That was a kind of a different, a different scene. So they were negotiating these social distinctions out here on the edge of the frontier. Um, but at the same time, while that would seem to be sort of the 
reflecting the triumph of the American expansion in the West, there was a more ambiguous reality reflected in both the archaeology and in the written documents dating to the 1850s, not the Victorian era. So for example, the dragoons at Fort Lane, we have a, a popular narrative in American culture of the cavalry saving the homesteaders or wagon train from the Indians. And that's a story we tell in television and movies, and we still tell it, um, even in the year 2015. But there was this more ambiguous reality back then. Um, the, the fact of the matter is that the pioneers of Southern Oregon were torn between those who followed the sort of states' rights sentiments of what would soon be the Southern side of the Civil War and believed that the federal government had no business in Southern Oregon and that they could treat the Indians in their own peculiar way, which was basically uh, a genocidal sentiment. They wanted to kill the Indians and just claim their land. On the other hand, the federal officers, the mostly Yankee officers of Fort Lane, uh, like Captain Smith, would later on go on to be Union officers, and they believed strongly in liberal values of let's educate the Indian to become a white man and sort of a patronizing vision. And that led to conflict. Uh, sometimes armed conflict, and Captain Smith and his dragoons pointed their guns as often at white people as they did at Native American people. Uh, here are two quotes from, from the fort. One is by uh, Lieutenant Jacob Bowman Schweitzer, who was, who was one of these Yankee officers. He was a lieutenant and from New York City, found himself on the frontier, and he describes an incident where he says, a large party of miners had collected in Jacksonville and sent a deputation to Captain Smith saying they would attack the Indians on the Table Rock Reservation. Captain Smith told them he would advise them not to as the soldiers would protect the Indians as they were placed under the guard of the military by the Indian Department. They said they would whip the soldiers too if they interfered. Captain Smith said, bring it on. And that was written in 1855. Captain Smith, at another moment, a year earlier wrote, he said, News reached camp that a volunteer company had followed us for the purposes of attacking the Indians. I left camp with 153 Indians and proceeded to the ferry determined to shoot the first white man that would attempt to molest them while under my charge. So that paints uh, a very different picture. At one point, a, a lynch mob from Wairika came from over, this, over the mountain pass to Fort Lane to demand a prisoner, a Native American prisoner from the brig at Fort Lane. And, and Captain Smith refused, and these, this citizen militia threatened to take them by force. Um, and I think about those kinds of stories which run such, so contrary to this sort of popular modern narrative, and think about what that must have been like for these officers at Fort Lane. And when you look carefully at the assemblage of artifacts he had there, and, you know, and this is in contrast to that sort of royal picture of the panorama of horse-mounted soldiers in the beautiful Rogue River Valley. The officer in this cabin was obsessed with his personal appearance. Not only did he have French cologne and, and shiny buttons, but he had thimbles and sewing needles, and he was clearly working very hard to keep his appearance up, um, despite the fact that they were so far out on the edge of the periphery that they had to take quarters that they would get as pay and carve them and use them as spurs. And that's, this is an image of one of these artifacts that was found in the officer's quarters. And I think a lot about, in our, in our research, about how the experience of a 22-year-old uh, West Point trained officer on the frontier, and Captain Smith would go back and be a general in the Civil War on, on Ulysses S. Grant's staff. He's been called by one historian the most famous general you never heard of from the Civil War. 
And in this cabin, there were two bear canine teeth. So while this guy is sitting in his cabin having to step out in front of mutinous pioneers and Indians, he's trying to facilitate their experience on the reservation. He's also collecting uh, bear teeth from, uh, as, an ex as a souvenir of his life on the frontier before he goes back to, to St. Louis. Um, so it's a, so the, our research at Fort Lane paints a slightly different picture than that sort of narrative of a triumphant frontier process for America driven by the, the, the efforts of the pioneers themselves. The federal government was there. Um, another project that we've done through Southern Oregon University uh, speaks to how those soldiers, how those Dragoon soldiers first came to Oregon. And this is the Camp Castaway project that, took, that we did a couple of years ago on Coos Bay. And this is another one of these stories. Uh, Camp Castaway, the story of Camp Castaway was immortalized in once again a turn of the century memoir or set of memoirs written by a newspaper man named Orville Dodge. And Orville Dodge uh, was part of this literary movement to romanticize the pioneer experience as the pioneers themselves were becoming elderly. And he collected three, uh, two memoirs, one by a guy named Baldwin and another guy, Philip Brack, from these who were leading citizens of Coos County at the time. And they told the story of the opening of Coos Bay to pioneer settlement and how that happened. And it happened when the schooner Captain Lincoln wrecked on the north spit of Coos Bay in the spring of 1852. And Company C of the 1st Dragoons spent four months uh, marooned on the sand dunes and in the process learned that they could get a, a boat across the uh, open bar of, of Coos Bay. And then later on when their, when their term was up in the army, they, became, they came and settled Coos Bay. And that was the origin of Coos Bay. And to this day, uh, residents of Coos County tell that story, remember that story. They're very interested in our research there. And it's their origin tale. It's how they think about the beginnings of American Coos Bay. So we had an opportunity to work with the uh, Coos Bay Bureau of Land Management and the Confederated Tribes of Coos, Loramqua, and Sayusla Indians on trying to find and excavate the Camp Castaway location. And the real um, key into that archaeological site came from an archaeologist named Scott Byram who was doing research into the field notes of the U.S. Coast Survey, who under the direction of the Treasury Department in the 1860s um, were creating the, the first nautical charts on the Oregon coast. And those surveyors were making detailed maps, and this is one of their charts. This is, the, this is Coos Bay drawn by the Coast Survey in, in the 1860s. And while they were creating these charts, they oftentimes um, recorded Indian villages, trails, old ruins, and things. And one of the places that are mentioned in their unpublished field notes is a wreck that they described as being a shipwreck on this North Spit. And Dr. Byram realized that this is probably the location of the wreck of Captain Lincoln and Camp Castaway, which no one knew exactly where it was. Um, we had some ideas. The general location is on the North Spit of Coos Bay, more or less where the ship New Carissa wrecked in 1999. And that's kind of one of those uh, delicious coincidences of history. The two things happened more or less in the same place. Um, and Dr. Byram went out there and 
did some preliminary work and found 19th century artifacts. And Southern Oregon University was called in and, and we went there and we did our own primary document research into the, into the site. And the sources about that Camp Castaway experience come from two different kinds of, of, of sources. One, one of the contemporary army records, which include another young lieutenant, Lieutenant Henry W. Stanton, who was in Company C, First Dragoons, the same company as in Fort Lane a couple of years later. And then also a member of the Quartermaster Corps down in Benicia, California, Captain Morris Miller. And they documented for the official record what happened to Captain Lincoln and the Dragoons at, at Camp Castaway. And then we have these Victorian accounts written 40 years later, 50 years later, by Henry Baldwin, Philip Brack, and another guy named William H. Packwood, who, and Packwood himself, is a classic figure in this kind of historiography. Uh, Packwood and a colleague of his, George Abbott, were both enlisted men on Captain Lincoln, members of Company C, First Dragoons, probably in their late teens or early 20s. Both of them went on to be prominent members of the early state of Oregon in the Oregon Territory. George H. Abbott, I mean, George Abbott became an Indian agent. He wrote uh, documents to the Smithsonian about Indian culture and um, did other things. Uh, William Packwood helped design the, the very seal we showed earlier in the presentation, and he was a member of the Territorial Constitutional Convention. He, um, he, he, be, he went on to a career in politics, and he was the great-grandfather of Senator Bob Packwood of more recent years. And both of these gentlemen are remembered as leading citizens of early Oregon. But once again, I mean, their histories are a lot more ambiguous than that. To, even to this day, the Oregon Encyclopedia describes William Packwood as an Indian fighter. And we know from document, documentary evidence that he and Abbott, after their tenure in the Army, were implicated in the massacre of Coquel Indians on the mouth of the Coquille River in February of 1854, and then charged the government for their services in, in that action. So there, some, uh, there's some ambiguities there. Uh, but that's where the information comes from. They wrote these stories about Captain Lincoln and, and Camp Castaway. Captain Lincoln was a transport schooner of the Quartermaster Department of the United States Army. And it was built at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution by a guy named R.F. Loper, who was a shipbuilder from Philadelphia. And he made a fortune on government contracts and patenting maritime technology in the mid-19th century. And in the, as the United States grew, the quartermaster department needed to transport stuff all over the continent. And they created this fleet of transport schooners. This is one of their ships, the transport schooner Whig, which is a two-masted schooner. Captain Lincoln was a three-masted schooner, and it um, weighed, it had a capacity of about 300 tons. And it was launched in 1847 and was quickly put into service in the Mexican War, where it spent time traveling back and forth between New Orleans <clears throat> and Veracruz and Brazos Santiago at the mouth of the Rio Grande River. After the Mexican War was over, it found itself in Benicia, California, and then in Late December of 1851, um, it was assigned to transport the first company of US Dragoons to the Oregon coast at a time when the only settlement on the coast of Oregon was Fort Orford. And here was the federal government using its power through the United States Army to assist in the pioneer settlement of Oregon. 
Fort Orford had been established by a man named William Titchener as a commercial enterprise. This was at the height of the gold rush. And the city of Jacksonville was at that time the biggest city in Oregon. And people from San Francisco and Portland and the Willamette Valley converged on the Rogue River Valley to try to strike it rich with gold. William Titchener was thinking ahead, and he looked at Port Orford on the Oregon coast and said, that's how I can make money by supplying those mines, because it was only about 70 miles as the crow flies between, the Oregon, between Fort Orford and Jacksonville. So he, he established that, that town site and then sent his own people to blaze a trail up the Rogue River to reach Jacksonville. And they, were, they got lost and attacked by Indians. Um, that is, to this day, one of the most rugged wilderness areas in Oregon. And to drive that 60 or 70 miles as the crow flies takes four hours between Jacksonville and Fort Orford to this very day. So the Army came to Titchener's rescue and established Fort Orford and sent these dragoons to Fort Orford. They left, they left port and on December 27th, San Francisco. They crossed the Golden Gate and immediately were hit with a gale. According to the memoirs, the ship was leaky, and they, they had to, the 22 dragoons on board had to take turns manning the pumps for the three or four days they were en route. Um, in the middle of the night on January 3rd, 1852, they hit a sandbar and um, were lifted over that sandbar and came to a rest broadside to the beach. And in the pre-dawn hours, they didn't know if they were alive or dead. All the men were hunkered down below decks and the waves were crashing over the top of the, of the ship. And the captain ordered uh, double strong grog to be served around. They, they passed it around in two wooden buckets, uh, drinking, waiting for dawn to see what would happen. But when, they, when dawn came, they found out that they were alive. They were on the north spit of Coos Bay in five feet of water. They happened to crash at a high, really high tide. And they began to offload the ship. And they had all this valuable cargo on board. And for the next four months, they sat there on the north spit of Coos Bay while the army figured out what to do. 22 guys plus a handful of sa sailors. The local Native Americans from the village of Honisich, which is where North Bend now stands, um, came to visit them and help them offload the ship. And be they began to trade uh, with the Dragoon soldiers there. They built a tent city. And they took the, the stove from the ship's galley and, and set up a kitchen. They erected a mast as a flagpole, and they set up military discipline. And Lieutenant Stanton would travel back and forth to the Umpqua River and Fort Orford trying to figure out what to do with all this cargo. Eventually, to make a long story short, uh, Morris Miller, the quartermaster, and Stanton um, got a, a ship. They chartered a ship at the mouth of the Umpqua, the Fawn. And with the captain of, Cap of Captain Lincoln as pilot, it entered Coos Bay. And they, this was in May of 1852, offloaded all the cargo. And Camp Castaway was abandoned. Um, and that's the, very briefly the story of Camp Castaway. Having located the site, we went out there to see what we could find. These are the archaeologists working on the site. We started out with a ground-penetrating radar survey, which is a way, a remote sensing technique, to look beneath the ground. This was a Southern Oregon University class that we hold in the summertime and included the participation of the Coquel Indian tribe in the Confederated Tribes of Kusla, Sayusla. Using the radar waves bounce off artifacts and features below the ground. And using that, we targeted uh, some of those places and we dug in the sand dunes and collected a, a large number of artifacts uh, from, the, 
from the Captain Lincoln, and that and many of them were in very poor condition given the rusty, um, given the the, the the salt water. So, for example, this is a blunt bolt. It's a it's the the memoirs talk about the ship being a being a rickety old ship, and this was this con the archaeology confirms that. There are many of these things are like pieces of rebar that the sailors would drive between the beams on the ship to keep a, uh, an old ship together. And you can see how rusty it is, uh, but they, it still retains some integrity. We have, we ex, this is our laboratory procedures. We x-ray the artifacts and then use an electrolysis process to reverse the rusting, and that's the same artifact after its conservation. And there was a large number of, of architectural remains from Captain Lincoln at the site. These are spikes uh, that are part of the architectural aspects of the vessel. More of these blunt bolts that are indicative of the poor condition of the ship. This is a, a chain bolt that is part of the rigging of Captain Lincoln. And that confirms archaeologically that they were dismantling the ship and dragging it ashore. It's a shipwreck on land, so to speak. And these are all hand-forged 19th century technology. These iron or ferrous metal spikes would have been used above the waterline on the ship's superstructure. And there you can see the hand-forged uh, heads of these spikes. There are also copper spikes, which were in 19th century maritime technology were below the waterline. And many of them, we would find them in clusters and they were all sheared at, at the same angle as it were two beams were torqued apart in the wreck of the ship, which was kind of a neat detail. And the ship, and the hull of the ship was sheathed in copper. And we found today, you think of them like roofing nails, the kind of nails that would hold that copper sheeting to the, to the deck uh, or to the hull of the ship. And there they are in the field. And the copper acted as a preservative and preserved some of the wood of the Captain Lincoln's hull around the actual nails. And then this is in turn some of the copper sheeting which we found deliberately cut up, which was done either by the dragoons to trade to Native American people or after the camp was abandoned, Native American people did that themselves. Indians really appreciated metal from the American pioneers. <coughs> Other parts of the ship and cargo were in bad condition. That's a barrel hoop that as we excavated it in, in the field, and that was a ghost of itself. It was just a, a rusty stain in the soil. So we pulled the dirt out from around it and got the dimensions on it. And that's a barrel hoop. So that was part of the cargo of Captain Lincoln that they hauled out of the ship. But that didn't come out of the ground. It came out in, it was basically rust-colored sand. Um, the, the Dragoons and Camp Castaway, we found some aspects of their stay there over four months including these percussion caps, which were how they fired their weapons. They spent a lot of time apparently just firing at their guns out of boredom or for weapons drill. And um, musket balls. And this was a standard 69 caliber and 31 caliber cartridge that would go into the what they called musketoons that were used by the dragoons. And they were locked together in a, in a paper bag with gunpowder. And that was the standard cartridge of the dragoons at that time. Not too much in the way of domestic artifacts, but we did see them attempt to establish some kind of domestic normalcy. There were alcohol bottles there and China, uh, China plates, and their memoirs of that do talk about you know, maintaining some military discipline and having enlisted men's barracks and the like. Like at Fort Lane, we also found at least one glass trade bead, which was universal currency for uh, Americans who wanted to interact with Indians, and at least one of these dragoons or sailors brought some glass trade beads with them. 
and military buttons identical to those at, at Fort Lane. So Captain Lincoln, you know, that was the, the US government's using the United States Army to ensure the success of this early pioneer venture. And that's how the first dragoons came to, um, to Oregon. They would go on to establish uh, Fort Lane and that would administer the Table Rock Reservation until the fall of 1855 when the last um, paroxysm of violence of the Rogue River Wars took place. And that started on October 8th, 1855. Uh, Lieutenant Schweitzer was awake uh, in his cabin at dawn and he heard gunfire off in the distance. This is on October 8, 1855. And that gunfire was a, a vigilante group from Jacksonville led by a man named uh, James Lupton who went down to the Rogue River. This is about where Tuvel State Park is today and attacked three Indian villages on the border of the Table Rock Indian Reservation and uh, massacred their inhabitants. Uh, Lieutenant Schweitzer was ordered by Captain Smith to ride out to the Lupton Mass to, to the site and the pioneers fled at his approach and they took the surviving Indians back to Fort Lane. And that's a complete inversion of that narrative of the cavalry running to the rescue of the pioneers. In the aftermath of the Lupton massacre, the Native Americans on the reservation basically took one of two approaches. Some trusted to the government and went to Fort Lane for protection against the pioneer lynch mobs. The rest, and these were led by the Indian chiefs, John, Limpy, and George, basically decided to fight it out. And they traveled westward down the Oregon-California Trail following the route of today's I-5 and killed every white person they could find and burned down every cabin they could find and then holed up in relatively inaccessible areas. Chief John took his people up to Deer Creek up on the Illinois River. Um, and George and Limpy went up into the Grave Creek Hills in the highlands between the Rogue River and Cow Creek. And you know, that was a very violent moment. The, the citizen militia and the federal soldiers at Fort Lane dropped their animosity for a brief period of time. I think of it as like a 9-11 moment when all the political differences were set aside against this horrible event that had happened. And they agreed to work together to fight this battle. They had to find the quote unquote hostiles though. So Captain Smith of Fort Lane and a man named John Ross, who was a quote unquote Indian fighter from Jacksonville, led their, um, just tried to find the George, Limpy, and John. Who, at that, who were waging a guerrilla warfare by that time. The Battle of Hungry Hill was what happened, the Battle of Hungry Hill was what happened when those um, dragoons and citizen militias found the hostile encampment of Native Americans in the Grave Creek Hills. And it happened between October 30th and November 1st, 1855. Um, the, the word of what happened at the Battle of the Hungry Hill reached the settlements of the Willamette Valley a couple days later. And this is a quote from the newspaper at the time, the Oregon Statesman. And this is how people back in, in, the, in the settlements heard about the battle. It said, the war in the South has become a real and earnest affair. The battle in the Grave Creek Hills has proved most disastrous to our side. It is supposed that there were not more than 100 fighting Indians engaged in the action. The loss on the side of the Indians was very trifling, probably not more than seven or eight killed. The Indians had taken a position in the mountains about uh, 15 miles west of the road to Jacksonville, an almost inaccessible place. 
After two days of hardest kind of fighting, the Indians were left in possession of the field. In about 10 days, it is proposed to renew the attack. The exterminators are rather down in the mouth. Those are the people that attacked the Indians on the reservation. Major Ross was present in command of the Southern Battalion. God only knows when or where this war may end. Um, and that is a pretty sober assessment of what happened. It was a resounding defeat for the American forces, one of the biggest defeats of the United States Army at the hands of an Indian force in the history of the American West. But what is strange is that compared to other more famous battles, like the Sand Creek Massacre, the Battle of Little Bighorn, the Battle of Hungry Hill, which is close, is in scale, a very huge uh, fight. It was like 300 Americans and uh, 100, 200 Native Americans, and it was a major defeat. It's like it's not part of our history, and I, and I was curious why. And the actual location of the battlefield was missing. Now, when you jump ahead to that era of pioneer memoir, like this one here from 1884, it paints a, a picture of the Battle of Hungry Hill that's very romantic, and well, we'll read it. When news of the butchery of the Harris's, Wagner's, and the other unfortunates reached the mines and farms, the entire male population of the Rogue River Valley sprang to arms with a unanimity and promptness in consonance with the extreme gravity of the situation. The inhabitants of every mining camp enrolled themselves for duty against the despoilers. The command of the military had devolved by right of his commission as colonel in the 9th Regiment of Oregon Militia upon John E. Ross, an Indian fighter of great experience, judgment, and resolution. The company commanders numbered several men who had already achieved celebrity by their conflicts with the Red Men. James Bruce was there, characteristically impatient to fall upon the foe. Jacob Reinerson had left his claim on Cow Creek at the first news of the massacre, and assembling perhaps two score of his neighbors, had arrived upon the bloody ground almost before the corpses of the slain men, women, and children had stiffened in death. Welton Griffin, T. Smiley Harris, Wilkinson, and other men of might and courage were there, whose names yet linger in the recollections of the people of Southern Oregon and are not likely to be forgotten as long as bravery and hardihood possess a charm. So that was an anonymous uh, memoir written 40 years after the effect that celebrates the heroism of the participants of the Battle of Hungry Hill in this defeat. So a few years ago, we began Southern Oregon University, the Bureau of Land Management, the Confederated Tribes of Siletz Indians, the Cow Creek Tribe, the Grand Ronde Tribe. We all worked together to try to find this location. <coughs> we also had the help of Ben Truey of the Southern Oregon Historical Society and an Army historian, uh, Colonel Daniel Edgerton. And we assembled as many written documents that we could and we conducted archeological survey. The location is in the highlands between Cow Creek and the Rogue River, west of Interstate 5. And we basically spent several years conducting field research with metal detectors walking at likely, through lo likely locations in the forest. And after a number of years, uh, and it, it proved challenging, very uh, dense vegetation. Uh, this is John Craig, who is at one of our surveyors, who is basically rappelling down a steep slope and heavy brush while, while simultaneously metal detecting. And then eventually we found the Battle of Hungry Hill. Once again, 69 caliber musket balls and the, um, a, a lid to a, a gunpowder container. We were aided by an actual map that Captain Ross and uh, Captain Smith drew for the battle. And once again, to make a fairly long story short, it was a classic story of what can go wrong. Captain Smith had originally planned to divide his forces into three and surround the Indian forces. 
Um, and this is a map that shows that plan. But what actually happened was as they, they left at 11 o'clock at night and they wanted to march through the, the night and surprise them at dawn. But they all got lost in the woods. And instead of coming up surrounding the Indian encampment, they arrived in front of the Indian encampment in a single spot. Uh, and they almost shot at each other, thinking that they were the enemy force. And while they were, when they realized what had happened, they were trying to figure out what to do. And against orders, some of the men lit uh, a tree on fire. This is after marching all night, and they were cold. And two of the military officers were, de were, were described as being too drunk to proceed. It was kind of pandemonium. And the discipline of the men broke down. And they saw the Indian encampment on the, on the further ridgeline. And all 300 men, or most of them, just went for it, and they ran. And if you look at this picture, the, their charge went from the east side of that, oops, they went from the east, the left side of this picture down into a valley 1,500 feet and then up the next, to the next ridgeline another 1,500 feet. And they took them two hours to do that, uh, charging and yelling. And then, so instead of their carefully laid out plan to envelop the Native American encampment, they made the biggest mistake in military tactics and attacked a position, a prepared position head on. And they got annihilated. These are two eyewitness quotes from what happened next. The first onset of the troops drove the Indians from the crest of the ridge into the cover and shelter of the trees and chaparral of the descending slope. Concealed in this excellent cover and stripped for the fight, they quickly checked our progress by their telling fire and laid orders to combat on a large number of troops. And then one lieutenant, Lieutenant Cout, said, one of ours, Gillespie, was killed and several wounded. And this one dead man won the battle, and two-thirds of the men never passed on this, never got past this one dead body. And we were able, through archaeological survey, to identify different parts of the battlefield. These are 69 caliber musket balls, some fired, some not fired. And in some degree of detail, we were able to track out the movement of the battle of both sides of the, both forces over the course of the day. The Americans unsuccessfully tried to bludgeon their way through the Indian position, but, but failed. This is, a location, this is a shot roughly where John Gillespie was killed. And this was after one of our forest fires took across um, uh, the landscape. And two more quotes from that battle. It was a horrible battle. There was that little group of devils protected behind their fortifications, dead sure of their own safety. We, a lot of greenhorns, hardly knowing how to hold a rifle, we fell like game before the good huntsman's aim. I remember one half-breed named Venus, he was called. He had himself ensconced in a hollow pine tree that almost hid him, and there he blazed away with the crack of his telescope rifle as easily from a porthole. He was a deadly shot to that fellow. And here's a case where a memoir written later agrees with the contemporary source because another man said, in 1855, it is said that much of the execution was done by one Indian who lay concealed behind a root. The crack of his rifle could be heard over all the others. And where, whenever the smoke was seen to rise from behind that root, a white man was almost sure to be killed or wounded. And this is an image that shows the rough position of the Indian sniper. And we found uh, fired ammunition where the American weapons had attempted to reach him. In any case, the battle ended in a rout, and they spent the night at a place called Bloody Springs, and the next morning they were evacuated out uh, to the settlements. And many of the memoirs, the private memoirs, unpublished ones, admitted that they basically wanted to forget that the battle had actually happened. The war would continue over the wintertime. It was not the quick victory they were looking for. 
Um, ben Truey of the Southern Oregon Historical Society found an amazing letter written by one of the army officers, Lieutenant August V. Kautz. Once again, one of these junior officers would gain some fame in the Civil War later on. And he wrote a private letter to Joseph Lane, a politician who lived in the Roseburg area at that time. And it creates a very, in contrast to the romanticized pioneer memoirs, it has a very sober uh, assessment of what had happened. And I'll end with this quote. And Lieutenant, Lieutenant Kautz, who participated in the battle, his assessment was, the unpleasant truth is that the whites were cowards. They were wiped out by one fourth of their numbers of Indians. It had a, and had it not been 30 or 40 good men, the rest would have broken run. As it was, some did break and never stopped. The great secret of the failure is that the volunteers expected the regulars to do all the fighting, whilst the regulars were expecting the same thing from the volunteers. I do not think much of the conduct of the officers. Nobody attempted to lead the men, and I don't think that Colonel Ross or Captain Smith attempted to fire a gun. There was a want of confidence all around. It is a war they have brought on themselves. The Indians are fighting in self-defense and they fight well. I have every reason to believe that it has been gotten up expressly to procure another appropriation. I fear you paid them too well for their meritorious service in 1853. War is a money-making business. Thanks. So thank you for coming and joining us this evening. And open your eyes. Remember, history is everywhere. I didn't do any of this. There, Peabody, Sherman, and Wayback here. He's Mr. Peabody. He's Sherman, and if the Wayback could talk, it would tell you that it's uh, the Wayback. Today, Sherman and I are going to explore the five senses. You mean like taste, smell? Uh, no, 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 Sherman. The five senses as in nickel, specifically the Indian head nickel, and we shall be on hand to help in the engraving of the first coin of that kind. The year? 1869. The place? The plains of Wyoming. We entered the Wayback machine and were promptly transported to our destination, and there, standing behind his easel, stood the noted artist and engraver, Talbot Heffelfinger. Hi, Mr. Heffelfinger. How's the Indian head coming? See for yourself, son. You can imagine our surprise when we saw an excellent likeness of Mahatma Gandhi. That's wrong, Mr. Heffelfinger. He's an Indian, isn't he? Well, yes, but the wrong variety. Look, I've been commissioned by the government to paint a picture of an Indian head, and so far the only one I've seen was a fellow named Tonto who was on his way to Hollywood. Mr. Peabody can find an Indian for you to paint, can't you, Mr. Peabody? As usual, Sherman's faith in me was justified. We packed up Talbot Heffelfinger's equipment and adjourned to the nearest fort. I'd like to help you, but there ain't no Indians around here. Oh, yes, there are, and I'll show you how we can meet one. I built a small fire, borrowed an army blanket, and proceeded to send a column of smoke into the sky. I tell you, you're wasting your time. I never waste my time. Suddenly, the silence of the vast plains was split with the cries of war whoops. Indians! 
Indeed we were, but by one lone brave. I don't get it. How'd you force that engine into attacking us? The smoke signal. There in the sky, directly over the fort, were the words, Custer won. I knew that would make any Indian mad. All right, Mr. Heffelfinger, go out and ask him to pose. Unfortunately, however, this was to be a still-life portrait, and the Indian was anything but still. I've got it! I've got it! All he got was the tail end of the horse. That isn't good enough? Hardly. Gee, Mr. Peabody, he'll never be able to paint with a horse running around like that. How can we get the horse to stop? Well, that's simple, Sherman. Just say, whoa. Whoa! But although the horse desisted, the Indian didn't. Too bad there isn't something to make a human stop. Ah, but there is. In a matter of minutes, I had constructed a stoplight. <laughs> now, Mr. Heffelfinger, paint your subject. The highly elated artist threw himself into his work and one hour later returned with a finished product. It's the best thing I've ever done. It was quite good. That is, if you care for stoplights. You didn't paint the Indian! Indian? There was no other course but to try it over again, but by this time the Indian had tired of the attack. He's gone! But not forgotten. Sure enough, there were moccasin prints leading off into the wilderness. I think I'll just mail in the picture of Mahatma Gandhi and forget it. I'm afraid that won't do, Talbot. With me leading the way, naturally, the hunt was on. Shortly before sundown, we reached an embankment overlooking an Indian village. Indians! Hundreds and hundreds of Indians! Please, please, Mr. Heffelfinger, restrain yourself, or you'll get us captured. You same pale face who try painting my picture, you beginning to bug me. Uh, yes, but Chief, your picture will be on every nickel in the United States. And in Canada, too. Tell them you what. You beat him strongest warrior in village, you get him paint my picture. I'll do it. Who is your strongest warrior? Standing Bear. He was standing all right, and he was a bear. Now, I, I can't fight a real bear. Of course you can't, Albert. Do as I say, and you're sure to win. And with that, the valiant artist entered into the fray. He was obviously outclassed. What now, Peabody? Uh, make it two out of three. Now make it three out of five. Five out of seven. Now make it 75,000 out of 4,298. I can't do it. I can't go on any longer. You won't have to, sir. Look at your adversary. He won, Mr. Peabody! He didn't win me, Sherman. He won the fight. Curious thing about bears, after fighting one or two days, they seem to lose their stamina. Talbot Heffelfinger, on the other hand, was full of vim and vigor and proceeded to paint the head of the Indian chief. He's a chief, Mr. Peabody? Why, yes, the most famous of all the Hanka Indians. Don't tell me you've never heard of the Hankas. Oh, I've heard of them all right, but I never heard of him. You've never heard of Hanka, chief? Hi, I'm Luke Bozerman, the blogger behind the Weekly Holler. This week, I want to tell you the story of an artist, a bison, and a coin that all left their mark on American history. James Earl Frazier was born on the Minnesota frontier in 1876, the same year as the Battle of Little Bighorn. He was surrounded by frontier and American Indian themes as he grew up. When Frazier wasn't living on his family's ranch, he traveled with his father, a mechanical engineer for the Chicago-Milwaukee Railroad, 
and slept on the floor of a boxcar covered by painted Indian buffalo skins. Frazier once wrote a letter to a young fan describing his childhood. A long time ago, when I was a small boy, I lived in the Indian country of Dakota, in the land that belonged to the Indians, and I saw them in their villages, crossing the prairies on their hunting expeditions. Often they stopped beside our ranch house and camped and traded rabbits and other game for chickens. They seemed very happy until the order came to place them on reservations. One group after another was surrounded by soldiers and herded beyond the Missouri River. I realized that they were always being sent further west, and I often heard my father say that the Indians would someday be pushed into the Pacific Ocean, and I think that accounted for my sympathetic feeling for them. During his childhood years, Frazier became interested in sculpture. He started making animal figurines out of soft chalk stone which he found in a quarry near his house. In 1891, when he was 15 years old, he enrolled in the Art Institute of Chicago with the goal of becoming a professional sculptor. At 17 years old, Frazier sculpted a piece that would launch him to fame. It was called The End of the Trail. The sculpture became an iconic American image, depicting an utterly defeated American Indian warrior slumped over his equally exhausted pony. The End of the Trail brought Frazier awards and secured him the mentorship of the great American sculptor, Augustus St. Gaudens. In 1911, the Taft administration decided to replace the Liberty Head nickel with a new coin and commissioned Fraser to do the work. To accomplish the design, Fraser drew on inspiration from his upbringing in the West. My object, he said, was to achieve a coin which would be truly American and that could not be confused with the currency of any other country. I made sure, therefore, to use none of the attributes which other nations had used in the past and in my search for symbols, I found no motif within the boundaries of the United States so distinctive as the American buffalo or bison. For his design, Fraser needed a model. Most evidence suggests that he used a bull named Black Diamond that lived at the Central Park Menagerie in New York. I stood for hours, Fraser said, watching and catching his form and mood in plastic clay. Black Diamond was less conscious of the honor being conferred upon him than of the annoyance which he suffered from insistent gazing upon him. He refused point blank to permit me to get side views of him and stubbornly showed his front face most of the time. On January 27, 1913, the Philadelphia Mint began stamping out the first run of Buffalo Nickels. They ran until 1938, making Black Diamond's profile the most widely distributed image of a bison in the world. The coins were released into circulation on March 4, 1913, and received praise due to their truly American design. One critic of the nickel said of the bison, its head droops as if it had lost all hope in the world, and even the sculptor was not able to raise it. This characteristic could be due to the fact that Black Diamond lived in a very small cage, and the tight confines affected his posture. The buffalo nickel was produced for 25 years. It was retired in 1938 and replaced by the Jefferson Nickel. James Earl Fraser went on to design several national monuments. Black Diamond himself was put up for auction in New York City in 1915. Fraser wrote that he had nearly killed his keeper, and this had led to the sale. When there were no bidders, he was offered for private sale. His keeper, Bill Snyder, hoped to get $500 for Black Diamond, but the best offer he received was for $300 from August Sills a dealer in exotic meats. 
Sills took Black Diamond to his butcher shop where the bison was turned into 1,020 pounds of meat. Black Diamond's head was mounted and hung on the wall of Silt's office. The head remained there until around 1918. Later it passed into the possession of the firm that bought out Silt's and remained in their office until 1978. Black Diamond's head still exists and is occasionally displayed at coin shows. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Weekly Holler. For more stories from history and folklore, check out theweeklyholler.com and sign up for our email newsletter. You can also find The Weekly Holler on Facebook, YouTube, and The Weekly Holler Podcast. Okay, that's it. We're done. Uh,